All right. Hello, hello. Good evening, everybody. Thank you all so much for being here. I just, <laughs> thank you. You know you're excited when I get applause. Uh, my name is Edward Wulcher. I am the curator of lectures here at Town Hall Seattle. And on behalf of Town Hall and our partners at the Elliott Bay Book Company, who are set up in the corner right over there, I am so happy to welcome you to tonight's event with Anand Girdardas. Presented by Town Hall as part of our Civic Series, a series supported by the Wincote Foundation Northwest, the Caffin Foundation, and the True Brown Foundation, as well as Boeing, the Real Networks Foundation, and KOW. In a moment, we're going to feel a little weird about doing that uh, sponsor acknowledgement as well. <laughs> will be revealed uh, throughout the night, but uh, we do thank our sponsors very much. Uh, so the format tonight is going to be a conversation. Uh, we actually sort of found this out last minute, but I'm so happy to be interviewing Anand uh, a little bit on stage, uh, a conversation between the two of us. Uh, but this is a really important book for the Seattle area with a lot of really relevant things for all of us in this room to think about. So we're very eager to hear your questions. So after some conversation on stage, we will be opening it up to Q&A from the audience. There's a microphone right over there that will be open for Q&A. When it's time to ask questions, you can come line up down there. I would like to remind people in advance to please keep your questions in the form of a question, not a comment, and keep it brief. I think we'll probably uh, not have time for everything tonight, but uh, we want to get through as many as we can. And after all of that, there will be a book signing. You can pick up a copy of Winners Take All at the Elliott Bay Book Company table right there, and he will be signing up here on stage. So really briefly, obviously we are not at Town Hall Seattle. We're here at the beautiful Southside Commons, which we thank very much for being our overflow venue tonight uh, for this uh, hot ticket, one of the hottest tickets in town tonight. Um, Town Hall, our historic building, is under renovation right now. We'll be opening early next year. We hope to see everyone there uh, with bells on when we open up. Uh, but in the meantime, we're producing programs all around town, including more down here in southeast Seattle. So keep an eye on everything we do on our website. The best way to keep up with everything we do is to be a Town Hall member. Thank you so much to the members of the room. It's the small dollar democratic support that really keeps us going uh, more than anything else. And so uh, we, we especially are grateful to our members when we are able to have conversations like the one we're about to have tonight. Okay, now the person you are here to see. Anand Girdaradas is the author of The True American and India Calling. He was a foreign correspondent and columnist for the New York Times from 2005 to 2016, and he's also written for The Atlantic, The New Republic, and The New Yorker. His writing has been honored by the Society of Publishers in Asia, the Pointer Fellowship at Yale, the New York Public Library's Helen Bernstein Award, he was also a Henry Crown Fellow at the Aspen Institute, an honor that gave him a backstage pass to the very elite charade that he will be talking about tonight, the highest corridors of power, uh, and which helped create this wonderful book that we're here to discuss tonight, Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. Please join me in welcoming Anand Girdardas. Ah. Hello. Thank you all for being here. It's the closest I'm gonna ever have to a religious experience. <laughs> Is that because you're in the hometown of Amazon? Yeah, exactly. You're feeling the, exactly. the, feeling the energy? Exactly. So um, I, I suspect a lot of the folks in this room have had some exposure to your work, but most people here haven't read the book. Um, this book is making this 
really broad and important argument, but it's also a fantastic piece of journalism. It has this great reporting, these thrusts fo following the stories of a few characters. So I actually wanted to start off with a question about so, so some of the central characters in the book, uh, particularly Emily Cohen, who is the, in the, I'm sorry, Hillary Cohen, who in the first chapter of the book um, is a young student who is interested in changing the world. And so can you tell us a little bit about her story and how that leads into decisions that she made? Yeah, um, I laid all my cards on the table with that subtitle, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. Um, I'm not very good at poker. Um, but one of the things that I understood as I did this reporting is that this culture that tasks the rich and powerful with reforming um, the systems they have designed that that fail many of us, um, doesn't start, the indoctrination, the, the dissemination of this culture doesn't start with them. It starts with young, impressionable people on college campuses. So the book starts with Hillary Cohen, uh, who arrives um, at Georgetown for her undergraduate study in, in the fall of 2010. And I kind of just tell the story of one idealistic young graduate who, who could stand for many of you in this room or many of your children or grandchildren, who really spoke for thousands of people in her kind of cohort and, and still today. She arrives wanting to change the world. She arrives, and if, you know, and I, I kind of go through in the chapter like the influences around her on campus and then in the society in that period. I mean, that period that, that she was at Georgetown was the period of um, Occupy, it was the period of, um, I mean, the country was still kind of very much in the financial crisis early recovery. Um, it was the period when Piketty's book came out and everybody bought like this crazy book and no one read it. Um, <laughs> and it was the period of Pope Francis, which at Georgetown is a really big deal, a Jesuit who's the most, you know, maybe powerful critic of inequality in the modern world um, and made a big stir at Georgetown. It's the time of the Tea Party, which in some ways is, was at, in that midterms in 2010 was a right-wing argument against out-of-touch elites. And, and so she, was, she and her friends couldn't help but observe that this was a society in crisis. This was a society in which many people felt left behind, felt things to be rigged, and they responded. But as they responded and tried to think about how to set out into the world after Georgetown, while reading their Aristotle and, 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 and going to that deep place that college often makes you go, there was another set of voices on the other shoulder, which was the voices of Goldman Sachs and McKinsey. And I tell the story of how this culture of kind of corporate change, privatized social change, has infiltrated campuses so that at every turn, Hillary Cohen was kind of made to feel and others were made to feel that if you don't intern at Goldman Sachs, you're not gonna be able to know how to make the spreadsheet to save those people. <laughs> if you don't go to that McKinsey information session Right? You won't have the presentation skills to start that social enterprise that you want to do that converts 
poop into recycled coffee grounds or whatever. Um, and while in many ways it, that these stories may sound either very familiar to you or very preposterous to you, but they're incredibly widespread on these campuses and they work. And Hillary Cohen did an internship at Goldman Sachs. That was a little too far down the doing well, end of the doing well by doing good continuum. Um, then she decided to try McKinsey. And she felt awful about the decision that felt more and more imminent to her. She thought it was the most soul-sucking decision she could make, in her words. She, I think, turned down the offer five times. I don't remember my own book exactly. Um, and then she took the offer. And I say in, in, at that moment, the, the moment she kind of took the offer is when I think she joined what I call in the book Market World. And Market World's one word, capital M, capital W. And Market World, this is a book about Market World. Market World is, you know, writing is a lot about trying to make people see what they've already seen a million times and reconstitute it. So I wanted to bucket together a lot of things that you may think are different things. And Market World is like my big bucket where I try to throw in a lot of different things. And Market World's a complex of people and institutions that believe in the supreme power of doing well by doing good. That believe in the win-win. That believe you can save the world and protect the status quo. Um, that believe you can make a difference while protecting your opportunity to make a killing. Um, that believes that you can change the world without your world having to change. And its market world is found in institutions like McKinsey and Goldman Sachs and others that pitch these kids. Um, it's found in every company that has a CSR department where they you know, maybe make playgrounds for the kids they help to give diabetes. Um, it's found in every tech company. Uh, you may even know some of them. Um, <laughs> that is busy dispensing Band-Aids for the cancer that they cause. Um, and market world is important to understand, and I, I wrote the book because I felt that it was not just a quirky group of rich people doing things like, you know, uh, uh, kite surfing, you know. Um, when rich people do kite surfing, it doesn't really matter. I mean, that's, that's their business. Um, but when rich people get into the game of social change, they never stay in the back row. Um, in fact, they don't even sit in the front row. They always become in charge of the, in charge of the organization. They, 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 they get seats on the board of directors of social change. And what has happened in our lifetime, the familiar story that we, that we all know is that the right wing and, and business interests over the last 30, 40 years waged a war on government and discredited government and cut tax. We know that. I'm trying to tell a story of another half of the equation of people who really weren't down with that movement, but who ended up living in the world created by that movement, and who gave in sort of almost through secondhand smoke to the idea that the way you make change is through the market. The way you make change is through the tools and personnel and resources of capitalism. That the, and, and that, frankly, the arsonists who burn down the American dream are the best qualified firefighters. Um, and I wanted to understand how that happened. Um, and I wanted to, because the, the kind of journalism that I do, I didn't want it to be an argument, a lecture. I wanted it to be 
as in the case of Hillary and about six or seven or eight other people in the book, stories of real, earthy, complicated people um, struggling with their roles in that. And the last thing I'll say about that is I became persuaded at the end of this three years of reporting that we have a lot of decent people upholding a profoundly indecent system. The people I wrote about are not bad. It would be easy if they were just bad people. The, I, the people I'm writing about are not the Koch brothers. The Koch brothers want to just have like more business success and everything else is like, you know, the barnacles of fake ideas to justify a power grab. This is not, this is not a book about that. This is about people who I think genuinely want to make things better, but refuse to risk the system atop which they stand that they have reason to know shuts most Americans out of the American dream today. And it's about their moral dilemmas as they navigate that, wanting to change things and not change things. Um, and I, I'm very happy to be here tonight in Seattle because here you are living and I saw both today, you are living the, the American extreme of a society that is awash in innovation, but a little short on progress, if progress is defined as most people's lives getting better. That is incredibly generous. What a generous city this is, but a little short on justice, and sometimes at risk of confusing one for the other, that has Billionaires building the very infrastructure of the future, um, but less and less space for ordinary people to just so much as carve out a life for themselves. Um, and I deeply believe that if we don't figure out some of the questions that these characters were trying to figure out, um, and I say characters, but they're real people, um, if we don't figure them out as a society, I think we are going to a place we don't want to go. And that maybe even billionaires actually don't want to go. <laughs> are you trying to signal that that's the end? I got to go? <laughs> um, mentioning arsonists being the best firefighters, the, the chapter that goes into that is opens with one of the greatest uh, juxtapositions of epigraphs I've ever seen, which is the very, I think, familiar to a lot of us, Audre Lorde quote, the master's tools will never take down the master's house, something like that, juxtaposed with Donald Trump saying, uh, no one understands the system as well as me, that's why I alone can fix it. So kudos to, to that, Audre Lorde, Donald Trump, double whammy. I wanted them to meet, you know, it's like, I, I thought... <laughs> Where else were they going to meet besides in the side-by-side -side epigraphs in my book? <laughs> but you mentioned um, a moment ago this notion of win-win, which I think is at the core of, of the ideology that you're talking about. So will you expand a little bit about, on what the win-win perspective is and what maybe an alternative to the win-win perspective is? So we're, we're like in a, a safe space here, although I never quite feel safe in a church, but that's a whole, that's more my issue than yours. Um, um, how many of you have used or heard the word win-win in the last month in an unironic context? <laughs> right. You should be proud that it's a lower percentage than at many events I go to, so you guys are on the right path. Um, this is a word that's everywhere, right? And on the surface, it sounds great because it's not one victory, 
but two. Um, and you don't need to be a, I'm, I'm not a math major, and you don't need to be one to know that's better than one victory. Um, and yet, well, and, and so, you know, the concept of the win-win is, un, is unobjectionable in its, in its uh, hometown. Its hometown is like market exchange. Like, you have ice cream, I've got money. You know, I want some ice cream, you want some money, and we, we do a deal, and that's a win, that, that actually is a win-win. Um, it originates in the concept of trade, of exchange, and both of us are better off having done that deal. And as that example illustrates, there are a lot of win-wins in the world. There's many, many, many win-wins, particularly in the world of commerce, particularly regular commerce, not monopolistic commerce. Um, what has happened, one of the things I chart in the book, is this idea from market exchange has quietly leapt over the fence into the realm of social change and how people talk about making the world better, pursuing justice, um, dealing with power imbalances, etc. So that now, often when you hear causes, important righteous causes advertised, they now are marketed in the language of the win-win. Okay, so I'll give you some examples, and I'm sure you hear these all the time. These are all real examples that are just in the culture. You know, uh, empowering women isn't just the right thing to do, it's an untapped $28 trillion opportunity. That's a title of a real report. Right? How many of you, how many of you think, oh, that's smart that they did that, they you know, bring more people into the tent? Okay, you're an easy crowd. Um, but I think, I mean, I think you're in the minor or you're being shy. But like, I think the reason that language everywhere is like, oh yeah, smart. Like, you, you, get, you get some of those men along too. They like the trillion thing, right? Um, another one that I love because I hate it is um, during the refugee crisis, you know, at the number, I think 50 million, there, that last year, the number 50 million people in the world, the highest number since Second World War. Uh, hosting refugees is a win-win for the refugees and the host countries too because it, like the consumption boosts your economy. Again, you could make a case that you're just saying, in case you weren't persuaded by argument A, I'm just, you know, sweetening the deal. But there's, some, there's something that makes you groan, right? The need to say that it's of benefit to the people supposedly doing something good. Um, and so on, you know, th there's, Win-win, you know, Tom's Shoes is win-win social change. You know, uh, impact investing is win-win social change. Um, you know, lean in is win-win social change because it actually requires the powerful to do nothing and women are just told to solve sexism themselves. Um, <laughs> and, and these, it's, it's actually really, it's so cheap. It's just so cheap to tell people to solve a problem themselves. Um, you don't have to raise taxes or anything. And... What has, what, so I became interested in like, why is this, prolif why is this discourse of win-win change proliferating? And what I, although you are a sympathetic audience, in a lot of circles, people are like, what is this guy, like, it, it, it's true. I mean, by the way, it's true that liberating women is a $28 trillion in the sense that like, locking up half the world's population in a dungeon is like, does destroy a lot of value. Like, it's not false 
So what's the problem with making the case? Well, the problem with making the case is when social change needs to justify itself in the language of self-interest for the powerful, a lot of kinds of change are basically ruled out. And the only kinds of change that become acceptable are the ones that pay a kickback to the powerful. Right? So if refugees from a certain place do, are proven to like go to fast food restaurants and therefore that's good for the economy, then we'll do that. But if women having maternity leave as a matter of federal policy is not a win-win, it's just more of a win for the mothers and the babies, but maybe not big business, then we're not gonna do that because that's, that's, that's hostile change. That's win-lose. Um, and if we could build a charter school, not near our neighborhood because that's a little too close, but, but far away in someone else's neighborhood, but we could like wire the money there um, <laughs> and be on the board of it and we'll, and we'll, and we'll you know, each, each of us hedge fund guys will we'll, we'll pick one minority boy and send him to Yale. Um, that's a win-win because they'll win and, and we'll win because they won't be that near us. Um, but if we were to actually have fight for universal and equal public school funding, since there's actually no reason that anyone on earth could ever justify why six-year-old education should be funded according to the value of their parents' home, um, well, that wouldn't be good because that's kind of win-losey and the home values in all of Seattle's nice neighborhoods would like go down by a quarter or a third because it's that really good public school that uh, drove the home value in the first place. And so I became interested in the way in which this seemingly nice thing and these seemingly nice policies is actually ma ma you know, mask something very insidious in our time, which is the idea that the powerful must benefit from the reform of the system, that the kings must benefit from their from the revolution, um, that the establishment must benefit from reform. And it is a way of having change that changes nothing. Um, you mentioned earlier uh, Thomas Piketty, the, that book that we all have on our shelves and very few of us have read, um, which uh, in, in your acknowledgments you mentioned sort of helped inspire you because I, 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 something I really appreciate about this book in addition to all the arguments and the great um, narrative in it is it sort of paints this intellectual history of how the culture has helped justify its, how the culture of powerful philanthropy, powerful wealth, big business, has re-justified its existence since the financial crisis through institutions like the Aspen Institute. Uh, and in response to, and, and so what's the Piketty quote? Can you say that, that yeah, inspired I mean, so, you? So I was, like you, I was one of those people who bought that book uh, urgently, because you had to. And then, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't read it. Um, but then I started writing this book, and I, I mean, I obviously had to read, I had to read that book. Um, and it's, you know, it's great. I mean, it's hard, but it's great. And I started reading it, and within the, you know, but, I, but it was, it's like, you know, it's charts and graphs, it's complicated. And I, I was like, you know, it's like walking through the desert, and you're just like looking for a little bit of an oasis. And I found my oasis in like one of the first chapters. He has this line. And it's a kind of a line where, you know, sometimes authors, and I do this in my book, like authors will kind of signal the limit of what they're able to do and they'll suggest projects for others, you know. <laughs> and, um, and so he has something where he basically says like, look, my focus is like the economics of this, like the different growth, the growth rate of capital versus growth rate of economies as a whole and blah, blah, blah. 
Um, and he kind of has this line which like seemed like that like line to others, which is whether or not this unsustainable, sorry, whether or not this extremely high level of inequality in America and elsewhere is sustainable, whether or not it's sustainable, depends not only on the repressive apparatus, which sounded pretty scary, I don't know exactly what he had in mind, but it sounds severe, um, but also on the effectiveness of the apparatus of justification. And it's one of these moments where you just read something. And I, I was at that moment, I should say, when I just like, didn't quite know what my book was about, which is something that continues through the entire time of writing a book. And, but I was like, really in that moment. I, just, I didn't know what I was doing, and I was doing it, but I was interviewing people, and I was going places, but I didn't know what it was about. And I read that phrase, the apparatus of justification. And I thought, that's what my book's, that's what, he, he's not a culture person, like he's an economist. Like, that's his signal to me. I thought, um, like, go forth, young man. Um, and, and I really think of this book as an inquiry into the apparatus of justification, as it's live, being lived by these earthy people I write about. Um, because, he, like, and I think this is actually an optimistic point about the age we live in. I really, I think we sometimes imagine the world to be held together by these, like, really big, mighty systems and walls and institutions and people with all this money, I don't think we understand how it's all held together by culture and by beliefs that are widely held. And if those beliefs were different, the power structure would be very different. I'll just give you an example. And some of you, I don't know if any of you work in some of these big companies based in Seattle, but you know this if you do. In Europe, no one has ever, you know, no one, but most people in general do not see these tech companies or tech entrepreneur hero people, don't see them as changing the world. They just see them as the general view of those people is they're like, they're totally fine people. They, you know, they're just like, like a chemical company magnate or they're like a car seat manufacturing magnate or like a real estate person. Like they're fine, they can be here, but they're not changing the world. I've never met a European person who like talks about Zuckerberg or Gates, you know, in that way. And as a result, all those companies have faced a totally different and much tougher regulatory world in Europe. They've had antitrust issues, they've had tax issues, they have been hit and they've been held to account by an equal and countervailing force. And by the way, they still have Amazon in Europe, they still have Microsoft, they still have Apple, they, st like, they still have all the stuff. Um, but it's been a little more of a fair fight. And I really think it's like, there are other reasons also, and they have a different political culture, but I think a lot of it is like, their citizens don't think Mark Zuckerberg's changing the world. So politicians there don't face the backlash of their citizens when they go after them. And so one of the things I'm really trying to do in this book is to dismantle this apparatus of justification because I, I, I really do think, and, it, and it, I hope it feels like an optimistic point, that there are a set of phony beliefs, phony language, win-win, thought leader, doing well by doing good, innovation, 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 instead of like progress, progress, progress. They're just a bunch of these words and vocabulary and concepts that are kind of widely disseminated, unconsidered bullshit. <laughs> and I, I truly believe that if more and more of us just started seeing through that, it's not, a, it's not a silver bullet. There are no silver bullets 
in this uh, orange age. But, <laughs> but I actually believe you'd see young people making different choices about their careers. I think you'd see more people when they see a social problem making the turn towards a public solution instead of starting a cupcake company that gives back. Um, <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> you can go after Amazon, but don't go after our cupcake yeah, exactly, company. Exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> there's, a, there's some taboos that should not be violated. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, I, was, I tweeted today that... that um, We've miseducated a whole generation of young people to think that when you see a problem that hurts your heart, like start a cupcake company that gives back. Like, and we gotta kind of reteach people to like get on a bus and build a movement with people again. That's, that's you know, why many of us are even in this room to begin with. Um, yeah, so the apparatus of justification. Uh, I definitely want to dive deeper into this notion of the public realm and reinvesting in the public realm, but before we totally leave the topic of justification, you yourself, early in the process of thinking about these, were an Aspen Fellow and had the opportunity to sort of present some of these criticisms to a room of movers and shakers. So tell us a little bit about that and how you were received. Yeah, it was less warm than this crowd. Um, where were you when I needed you? Um, you know, I, so I was part of the, the Aspen Institute's like one of these sort of benevolent, open secret societies. Um, and does a lot of great work on a bunch of different issues, from national security to people who work on like monetary policy, foreign policy, and Middle East peace processes, often done at Aspen Institute facility in Maryland um, when there was a Middle East peace process. Um, and among the things it does, it has this fellowship, and these fellowships like this are very common. Now, Davos has one, it's an Obama fellowship, it's a Clinton fellowship, there's a TED fellowship. And these fellowships, they're different, but the, the, the Aspen one was all about, is they're kind of all young leaders fellowships, and the Aspen one is about kind of civilizing business people. The idea is you take in business people who've been successful, but maybe kind of narrowly focused on the success of themselves or their business, and, and, and this fellowship is like a turning point where you kind of, you make them read uh, Plato and Aristotle, you also make them read Jack Welch, um, which obviously should have been a sign for me earlier than it ended up being, um, that something was amiss here. Um, but the idea is you kind of get them together, you meet four times over, over two years, you sit, you read together, you have these deep, soulful discussions, and it was really, I mean, by the way, like it helps to have these discussions in Aspen. Um, and, and we bonded as a group. And it, was a, it was like a great experience. You know, anytime you're thrown together, these lovely people. And my... Are there trust falls? There literally were trust falls. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know if the trust falls. We, were, we climbed through some sort of mesh and had to like without touching the rope, and then you have to catch, it's, like, I mean, it's just amazing. Like, the, the, the corporate idea of intimacy is just like one of the most fascinating things in the world. Yeah. So much dehumanization to compensate for. Um, um, yeah, that's a whole other book. Maybe my next book's just on deconstructing trust falls. It would have to be three volumes, though. Um, and so, my, my experience of my class, and it's 20 people, was, was 
was great. It was actually just a nice experience. We bonded, you know. It was that larger world that I got into and I started going to these the Aspen Ideas Festival brought to you by Pepsi and Monsanto, um, where we talked a lot about making the world a better place. A lot of our conversations about making the world a better place were in the Coke seminar building, named not for the beverage, but the brother. Um, we were also in the Booz Allen Hamilton seminar room, that great military contractor. Um, when we came together for the summer reunion of all these fellows who were trying to make the world a better place, uh, Goldman Sachs was a big, was a big sponsor. Um, and in exchange for that, they actually got like an hour of our attention at lunch and they got to put on a panel uh, where they talked about their 10,000 women program, which is all the women they were empowering, which is a, turns out to be a smaller number of women than the number of women they caused to have their homes foreclosed on because of what they did in the financial crisis, but that's a whole other matter. Um, and the deal was like, you didn't say anything about that. You didn't, you didn't ask a question about, didn't you help cause the financial crisis before you started empowering these ladies? Like you didn't ask about why Monsanto was at the Aspen Ideas Festival. You didn't ask about Pepsi's role in the health of our society while it was sponsoring like panels about having a more healthy society. And we were all in on that. It wasn't just business people. It was like people like me. Oh, I should say like in every class of 20, there were like a few people like an artist, you know, troublemakers. Throw, I mean, I'm not sure they still do this after this book's come out, but they used to throw in a couple people like me. And I started to just, it started to just chafe at me, this, the hypocrisy of it and my own not saying anything and, um, and enjoying the trips to Aspen without like speaking truth. And so, and we used to, I wasn't alone. Like we, there's a bunch of us in the back row. We used to grump, all the weird, the artists, the Wall Street Journal editor. I mean, we were all like in the back being like, what, like, what is this? Um, but like the food's so good, um, you know? <laughs> Let's be honest, guys. Let's be honest. That's how they get you. That's how they get you. One canapé at a time. Um, cruelty by canapé. Um, and they asked me to... My last book, the book before this, there's like three copies of it back there I saw. Um, so you're going to have to dive if you want the backstory. Four copies, I'm informed. Um, the True Americans, but about a hate crime. And I'd done a TED Talk about it, um, another whole institution we can talk about. And they asked me to do a, a speech at this summer reunion we had of all the fellows about my hate crime book. Because that's the kind of thing that people, you know, plutocrats can get on board with because they're strongly anti-racist and at least that kind of anti-racist. Not into like a poor white guy from Texas killing immigrants. So they asked me to give a talk about it. I said yes. I quickly decided in my own mind that I wanted to give a different talk. Um, I emailed and said, I want to give a slightly different talk. And then I spent the next few weeks um, showing the elastic possibilities of the world slightly. Um, and I wrote like a kind of crazy speech. Well, I, crazy is hopefully not the right word, actually. But a, a speech basically bold. telling a room, bold maybe. I don't want to say that about myself either. But about the size of a room, maybe a little bigger, 300 people. Um, most of them fellows, but then all the like, trustees of the Aspen, there's a lot of millionaires and billionaires, a lot of names you'd know um, in the room. 
And I basically got up there and said, we're all in this room because we think we're changing the world. We're like here to come talk about how to make the world better. And I think we're not considering the obvious possibility that we are literally the problem. This room is the problem. <laughs> and it's like, maybe he read it wrong. Maybe like, <laughs> is it a teleprompter issue? Or like, what's happening up there? Oh, he's using paper, so that doesn't explain it. Um, and I basically describe this thing that I call the Aspen consensus, but in some ways it's the plutocratic consensus of our time, which is you can tell rich people to do more good, but you can never tell them to do less harm. You can tell them to give back, but you can never tell them to take less. You can tell them to share the spoils of the system that benefited them, but you can't ask them to concede that system. And when I say it's a consensus, this is where it starts implicating all of us, because they may create and shape that consensus, but it's all of us who participate in the consensus. It's museums who take that money from the Sackler family, which sponsors not only art museums, but also the opioid crisis, um, help to invent it with that Oxycontin that they admitted to fraudulently marketing. And it's every museum in liberal cities perhaps in this one, I don't know, that has a Sackler gallery and there's no problem with it. Every university is in on this game. Every private school is in on this game. Because we have so starved every other source of support for everything in American life, we all end up in hock to these institutions and then we all have to kind of abide this consensus. I've had people who like run social justice activist groups who tell me, well, once I took that $3 million grant from one of those big five foundations, they asked me to stop using the word inequality in my tweets. I could only say opportunity. Okay? People don't tell me things like that often because of what I do. You have to assume that's happening a thousand times more than the amount that they tell me it's happening. Right? And so what I just want to inspire you to think about is I don't think many of us want to be living in the moment in America we're living in. But I think we are e too easily tempted to think it's a problem of one man. And I want to suggest something very counterintuitive that this one man may be doing us. We may look back once the immediate heat and danger of this moment is past, we may look back on him as doing us a profound favor. Because if a decent person, whether it's Hillary Clinton or Jeb Bush, or, had been in that place, I think there's a lot about where we are and where we've been for the last 30, 40 years, and even longer, that we wouldn't have seen, that wouldn't have come to a head. I wanna suggest that the Trump presidency is that night in an alcoholic's life that, that sometimes makes them sober from the next morning onward. And what I think that could be in our case, I'm serious, I, what I think that could be in our case is the end not just of a presidency and of a crime racket, but the end of an age that for 30 or 40 years has venerated rich people as specially qualified, 
specially incorruptible, specially capable of solving the problems they created, specially capable of fighting for the common man. And just as 100 years ago we transitioned from a gilded age to an age of reform, an age of, transition from an age of kind of waiting for the powerful to kind of rain down on us little bits of largesse, to an age where we built systems together, we built infrastructure, we built the FDA so there wouldn't be antifreeze in medicine, we built, we did the Rural Electrification Act because the market was not gonna solve that problem. And we built the interstate highway system and we enfranchised women and we enfranchised minorities and we, we did a lot of things together that transformed this country and transformed the world in many ways. And I think we're on the cusp and overdue for an age of reform. I think we've been overdue for an age of reform for a while. But I think, imagine, imagine if this guy, imagine if it took someone like this guy to so flamboyantly discredit the idea that billionaires are gonna save us. Imagine if he was the spark of the age of reform. <laughs> I really felt the fact that we were in a church for a moment there. Um, so I do, uh, I, there's a lot to think about here and I do wanna open it up to questions from the audience in just a minute, but uh, I wanna dive into sort of this area of local concern and maybe give you a little bit of a harder question, um, which is, so Jeff Bezos just announced this monumental um, donation to uh, preschool funding, $2 billion. Uh, what would you say to a comment that I've seen many times from people with lots of different ideological perspectives that, you know, you can criticize Amazon for business practices, et cetera, but how could you possibly criticize this great gift towards, towards young people, and which you did pretty, pretty thoroughly in a Time Magazine Let me show article. You. Yeah. Let me show you how I would do it. <laughs> <laughs> if you think I can't criticize that, you don't know me very well. <laughs> yeah, you know, this is the great Martin Luther King line, Philanthropy is laudable, but we cannot allow it to over, make us overlook the circumstances of economic injustice that made it necessary. Um, I think we should, you know, read that quote anytime you think about Jeff Bezos and his, and his giving. Um, I want to say two things about him. The first, and please understand how dumb it is to talk about Jeff Bezos when you're an author, but I don't care. <laughs> This is not my first time. I just wrote an essay about it two days ago in Time Magazine. You know? yeah. um, the, the gift he's giving, like all of these gifts, no one is making the claim that no one's gonna be helped by this, okay? That's a dumb claim and like, that's the easy caricature that the other side will, will say that I'm saying or someone else is saying. There are people without a roof who will get a roof because of that money. There are kids in a bad school or not in school at all who will get a better school or a school at all because of that money. There's no question. Some, some people, many, it's enough money that maybe many people's lives will be made easier because of it. Some people may be, their lives may be saved by it. That's not the question. The question is, what is Jeff Bezos' full involvement in the problem that he's now coming to solve? 
what is the full involvement of his class with the problem that he's coming in to solve? And, you know, he started with this line in the, in the, in the tweet, which is how you make important statements now, um, that what, where's the good in the world and how do you spread it? Again, that's that win, win like it sounds great. Here's my problem with that line. A lot of what is wrong in our society, a lot of what isn't working, a lot of people's lives when they're not going well are not because of the failure of good things to spread fast enough. They're because of harm that is actively being done. And what I wrote in the time piece is, millions of Americans don't need rich people to spread good things to them, they need rich people to stop standing on their neck. Neck. And what I mean by that is, if you think about that issue of homelessness, I mean, it's a, we could do like eight hours on that issue, but if, and you start to go from how do I fund a couple shelters like root cause, root cause thinking. And you become interested in that issue and you become curious the same way I think he would if it was his company. Um, you very quickly get to the issue of housing stock supply, right? And you'd get to this issue of affluent people in Seattle, including presumably the kind of people who work at Amazon and these other companies, clinging to their single family zoned neighborhoods. It's hard to think about that issue without thinking of that issue, right? Um, I think you'd also very quickly get to the issue of wages. Um, people being paid more and being paid more steadily would reduce a lot of eviction in this country. You gotta assume that that issue where Amazon has been routinely criticized and many American companies like it have. Uh, and then there's the issue of taxation. And you all know the famous head tax story. Um, and it puzzles me, why is it worth it to you as a company to resist what's a minor tax? Um, and so when you look at an issue like that, the problem is the gift is only one piece of a complex puzzle of involvement with the issue, and all the other pieces are somewhat more unflattering. And what that may mean is that on an issue like that, and we're just picking one of those issues, on an issue like that, you may be actually fighting on both sides of the war, and your day job side is winning. What you're doing in your regular life, your day job, your business operations, is inevitably going to defeat whatever you're doing in your side hustle. We have a lot of virtuous side hustles in America today, but no one thinks to just be virtuous when they're paying their employees, when they're, you know, just giving, complying with a tax that was voted unanimously by the Seattle City Council, will of the people. Um, when they're thinking about whether, yeah, maybe their neighborhood will become a little less quaint, but there'll be fewer people on the street. I mean, it is, it is to me, as a visitor to the city, it's unconscionable what I see when I come here. 
I live in New York. I mean, it's not like this in New York. I will tell you, with eight million people, it's not like this in New York. And New York has problems, but it's not like this. And your billionaires per capita are probably way outstrip New York. And so I, I'm interested in what it would look like. But, but I want to say this also. There's an opportunity here. Bezos was really the first person to get into this mega giving game after two things have happened. The backlash against tech over the last couple of years, which is a real cultural shift. The way we talk about tech has just changed. Second, a real reckoning within philanthropy. My book is part of a conversation that has been happening and that is gonna keep happening. Um, my book builds on a lot of academic writing that has been also turning in its attitude. We are shifting from a kind of reflexive gratitude posture to a skepticism posture with the exertion of philanthropic power. And maybe, as he gives away, I mean, he's giving away a small amount right now and he hasn't even started, he has an opportunity to be a much more woke giver. Um, almost none of these people have done this, but he's coming at, an, at a new time, and I wonder what it would look like. I would invite him. I don't have a lot of hope, but I, I would invite him to think about how do you give in ways that actually correct the system that you're standing on, even if that would mean profits going down, stock value going down, right? If he were to really do this, Amazon would probably become a less valuable company. Um, that's real. It's not a win-win. And I, I gave an interview to the, the Farhad Manjit at the New York Times, a great tech writer at the New York Times, about this. And Farhad's one of these great writers who frames your ideas back to you better than, than you, which is always a little disappointing and also exciting, but quite disappointing. Um, and he took what I said and he basically said, in other words, Jeff Bezos should give, Jeff Bezos should give in ways that ensure that there's never another Jeff Bezos. And I think that's a really interesting way to think about it. I think this is the one case in the world where pulling up the ladder after yourself is good. I think we need some of these billionaires to pull up the ladder after themselves and make it impossible to make the kind of fortunes they made in the way that they made it. Um, and because he hasn't started, I would invite him to see if he could be a different kind of giver. Okay, uh, we have about 15 minutes for questions, so I'd love to invite folks who have a question to come on down to the microphone right here. Again, please keep your questions brief and in the form of a question. Is it possible, do you think, is there any way to sort of analyze these people and get rid of the guilt? So much of what they're doing is about guilt. Yeah, I, that's a great question. Do you hear that? Yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll say it. Can you, can, you, can you turn that microphone up, though? Um, like, what's the role of guilt in a lot of these people's lives? It's a very big part of the story. I have this, one of the people I write about is, her name's Lori Tisch. Um, and, you know, her name is in a gazillion buildings in New York City, big philanthropic family. Um, and, you know, some of the family money is made in hotels and some of it is made in cigarettes. And she feels a lot of guilt. And we had a whole, there's a whole part of the book about her, about her guilt. And she said, her, you know, her, 
one of her friends asked her, when are you going to get rid of that guilt? I mean, you do so much philanthropy, like, when are you going to get rid of it? And she said, gosh, I hope I never get rid of it. It's my compass. And I thought that was really, and she was a very thoughtful billionaire. And I thought that idea of guilt as compass is important. And then the other day, someone who's a, like a therapist said something to me that it was so profound, interesting. He said, you know, one of the arguments from like a therapist point of view, you, you could, like his way of saying my book, again, all these people saying my book better than me, but his way of saying it from a therapist point of view is that philanthropy could reduce people's guilt in a way that's actually not good, right? In other words, two billion for the homelessness could, could wipe enough guilt clean that you like, don't pay a million people well, um, which has much greater harm. And I thought that was very interesting. I think guilt is so important here and like, actually thinking about it as a force to harness um, and thinking about win-win like, change as something that may give premature um, absolution. A book that took me two years to read, Wealth of Nations. Sure. Wealth of Nations. If you had to rewrite it for this structure, what would the title be? Wait, what? A Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations. If I had to rewrite Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations. But in your theme. But in my theme? Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Um... Let me say, that may be a little too smart for me, but let me say this. There's an interesting Adam Smith connection in the book, which is, I actually tried to compare the win-win thing I told you about that's everywhere today with like Adam Smith's invisible hand. Because at first they seem the same, sort of, which is like, let rich people be them and they'll take care of the poor. But I started to analyze the two stories and actually, the theory we live under today is way more radical than Adam Smith, okay? And here's why. Adam Smith basically said, leave rich people alone, right? It's not from the butcher and baker's regard for others, but from their kind of concern for their self-interest that the general welfare is taken care of. Leave them alone, they'll, they'll do them, and good things will happen in the society. It's a happy byproduct, an incidental byproduct of them doing them, right? There will be bread, there will be meat, Think good things will happen. The new theory, win-win, but another word that kind of captures this is like philanthrocapitalism, which you may hear thrown around. The new theory goes actually way further than Adam Smith. It does not say leave people alone, leave rich people alone because things will trickle down. It actually says rich people are the most specially qualified to make change of any kind. They should run our schools. They should, after working at Goldman Sachs, run the inequality reduction program at a foundation because they know how to make inequality so they can <laughs> know how to unmake it. Um, and Adam Smith never said that the butcher and the baker should be like in charge of social change. He just said that they would ensure a certain amount of meat and bread in the society. And so I want to suggest that like, we think of Adam Smith often as this like, patron saint of the right and free market extremism. 
Adam Smith was like a namby-pamby compared to the ideology we are living under now, which tasks Mark Zuckerberg, not with just doing him and incidentally boosting the common good through products and services, but a culture that actually kind of takes him seriously when he says he, he, want, he wants to get rid of all the diseases. All the diseases, just get rid of them. <laughs> not the CDC or like university, like him. Um, we're living under something like that's Adam Smith on steroid cocaine. <laughs> and I think it's important that we recognize that, so. Thanks. I did my best. Hello, uh, this latest Bezos gift is a perfect illustration of what you're saying because he's giving a billion dollars to build a new network of preschools that will use the Montessori method. So what does he know about delivery systems and uh, 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 curriculums? It's crazy to have. But the question I want to ask you is, what, what attempts do you see as possible in the future to regulate foundations, um, either through taxes or, I know, I know, I think it was late 60s, they passed a law saying foundations had to give away at least 5% of their net, but are there other things you see that could be done? It's a great question. I mean, I, I try to avoid like super specific policy things because I'm just not an expert in it and there are other people, that's like my handoff to the next writers, the way Piketty did to me. Um, but I'll say a couple things. One. First of all, there's just the kind of cultural idea that we don't ask the question you just asked, that because they're being kind. So, so first of all, like, thanks for asking that question, and a lot more of us should be asking that question, right? Um, individuals get to be individuals in America. Everything else is a legal structure that the society gives out as a privilege. Corporations are a legal structure that we give out as a privilege. Foundations are a legal structure that we give out as a privilege. These are not entitlements, and we can ask for what we want in return for giving those structures. We don't do a very good job of like, asking for what we want. So if we wanted to say like no inherited, you know, Jefferson called these like inherited trusts like a hand reaching out from the grave, like fiddling with the living, right? That used to be the conventional view. Like who are people, there, I mean, there are people who died like 300 years ago who are shaping education decisions and who gets into what in a way that like you guys can't. That's crazy. So we could easily set a thing that says you've got to spend it down in your lifetime, you know, those kind of things. Like, I think we should have a real conversation about the charitable tax deduction. I mean, you all work longer hours every year and work harder and pay more taxes to subsidize billionaires giving money away. Do you know that? Like, it's about 60, 70 billion dollars that that deduction costs us. That's money that you're paying in taxes so that they can fund that break for them. Like, why are you paying that? Right? And it may be too extreme to get rid of that. So, like, another idea that I often talk about is uh, this is very important. I'm glad this came up, actually. I forgot about this. You know, I was having a conversation um, over the radio today with a, with a guy named Ben Soskis, who's a historian of philanthropy, a super smart guy. And he made this point that a hundred years ago, a lot of the big philanthropists saw what they were doing as being to incubate policy for government. They were trying things out that government was like too timid or kind of gun shy to, to do, they'd try them out. 
and some of them structured their private giving so that it would only kick in if government agreed. So like I think Carnegie, some of his libraries required that the public raise taxes to maintain the libraries that he was, it's not like he couldn't have funded the libraries, he's trying to build a habit, right? So it's, it, that's, a, that's a catalytic thing. That culture has totally gone from us. Today, people want to create something private because the whole part of it is like, I'm an entrepreneur, I make things, and I'm, it's like we live in this economy and culture of soloists. And, and so a lot of the giving is like soloist giving. So what I would say on that question is like, I'm just, I'm making this up here, I'm not sure this is actually good public policy, but like, who cares? Um, like, what if we gave you the tax deduction if you were doing that kind of giving? If you were incubating something privately and you were taking real steps to try to work it into government and make government better. And if you're not, and you're just doing a private program and putting your name on it to launder your reputation for what you did five years ago, good for you, no tax deduction. Simple. Thanks. Bravo, that was a wonderful book, and I'm uh, hearing it again. You read it while you were here? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm hearing it through your voice as well, through Audible, and it's fantastic. Oh, that's cool. So um, I, my question was a little bit about, on the chapter, you talk about the death of um, public intellectuals versus, you know, um, thought leaders, I think that was a great chapter. And for me, it was also in connection with what's going on in India as well, since your previous book was on India, um, where public intellectuals are being you know, shut down and it's just charlatans and gurus and you know, other corporate thought leaders sponsored by someone who are now in the public space. More TED Talks, but no real public intellectuals. What are your thoughts on it? Because it's not just America, it's all over the world yeah. that you're seeing it. Um. You know, I mean, I was a foreign correspondent in India for many years. I, mean, I haven't lived there in a long time and reported from there, so I'm wary of, like, saying too much about that more recent thing. But I'll say this, you know, I, I think, for most of you who haven't read the book, I mean, I think one of the, the chapter you're talking about is, is, tr is you know, I, I said at the beginning that I was trying to scoop together a lot of disparate things that may not be seen as of a piece, right? Like someone with $150 billion giving money away and a 22-year-old graduate deciding what to do with her life are not exactly the same, but I, I sort of am trying to suggest they're part of the same culture. And the person from Goldman Sachs who then becomes a foundation person trying to reduce inequality is different from those two, but it, again, it's part of the same culture. And when I was thinking about that apparatus of justification, there was one very important missing piece, which is if you believe, as I found, that these people generally are decent people, but they are upholding indecent, an indecent system. You need a, some kind of bridge to explain the gap. How do decent people uphold something indecent? And, and the bridge is, of course, bad ideas, bad beliefs. And these people themselves are not the, they're not idea generators, right? They're busy people building things. So who is giving them these ideas? Who is, if you, they want to be good people, but they're upholding it, who is reassuring them that lean in is real feminism? Who is reassuring them that that one charter school in that one neighborhood is good enough and they don't need to think about universal public school equity? 
who is reassuring them that giving back a little bit is fine and not worrying about their tax haven situation is cool? The answer is thought leaders. And I, you know, this phrase you hear, and hopefully you'll never use it unironically again after tonight. But I kind of define thought leader. I'm not the first one. I mean, I, thought leaders as like thinkers who are like the court jester thinkers of the powerful, right? They're the thinkers that powerful people keep around a Ted and Aspen and Davos who kind of don't, they have provocative ideas and interesting thoughts, but they don't threaten power. So they'll do lean in, but they won't do maternity leave as a matter of law. They'll do the charter school thing, but they won't do universal public school funding. They'll do giving back, but they won't do a talk on cracking down on the double dutch with an Irish sandwich tax maneuver. Um, and it's not even a tasty sandwich, by the way. Um, and I think it's a very important part of the story because, as I said at the beginning, bad ideas have an enormous power. Um, and so one, you know, people are always like, what can we do, what can we do, what can we can do? Like, one very tangible thing you can do is find ways through organizations like this to like, provide support for other kinds of thinkers. Great, thank you for funding Town Hall. Um, because it actually doesn't take a lot of money to maintain like, critics in a society, to maintain real thinkers who challenge power, to have like a, you know, your kind of field army of like, people who might become James Baldwin one day. But that's an investment a society needs to make. And by the way, and this is a, maybe we'll galvanize you more, the, the right wing understood this. And, you know, people on the left think they're the ideas-y side of the country. People on the right actually respect ideas because they invest in them. They fund institutes. Like, Charles Murray has never wanted for anything in his life. And that's a very good investment. Charles Murray, I mean, to maintain one thinker who will write all these books is a pretty cheap investment relative to all the things you can spend plutocratic money on. And people who actually want equality and justice and many of the things the left fights for kind of leave their thinkers alone. It is hard. I mean, I live in Brooklyn where it's like, all these writers, it's like everybody's struggling, like everybody's hustling, everybody, like there's no support, there's no grants, there's no institutions. Like, you know, you work, I mean, I mean, it's crazy. Like if you write for all the, like magazine, online magazines, like it'd be like, they don't tell you how many days to work on a piece, but it takes, you know, it may take you two, three weeks to work on a piece. They'd be like, okay, here's your $300 check, right? Like that's what we're doing to people who actually come up with critical ideas. But if you come up with power-flattering ideas, you get that $300 check, and then you get a $20,000 speaking engagement to go, like, say that at Johnson & Johnson. And we just have to decide, get smart on, if, like, if we're not supporting ideas, other people are. And they're going to get the ideas they're paying for. Amen, brother. Uh, I'm curious, what would be your advice for the Hillary Cohens out there? Like, how could she be most impactful coming out of college with a desire to change the world? Um, you know, first of all, I want to say you got to be respectful of the fact that 
people are coming out of college with all kinds of different situations, some with a lot of debt, some without debt, etc. So you got to do what's right for your situation in life. A lot of these are systemic problems that, you know, I'm wary of making personal problems. Like, we have a system that leaves people with way too much debt when they come out of college, so telling them that they should do X or Y can be complicated. Um, that said, I think the cupcake fantasy is wrong. And what I would say to them is, given their interest in making change, which is, I've found, when I, I mean, I spend a lot of time on campuses, it's like near universal. Um, given their, I mean, this is a hyper-aware, hyper-woke generation of young people. I go to high schools, I'm just amazed by like, how deep in the weeds they are in an issue like mass incarceration. My mother did an art project. Um, these kids had to write, to make pottery about it and write, and like their write-ups were like, how do you know this much about this issue at 15, 16, right? Um, when you see a problem like that that bothers you, train your mind against the grain. Don't start a business to solve it. Don't create an app to solve it. Think of a solution to that problem that is public, democratic, institutional, and universal. Right? That doesn't mean you'll be able to do it tomorrow, but those are two doors and they're not the same. And one leads to cupcakes and one starts to walk you down the path to reform. And cupcakes and reform, if you take one thing away from tonight, cupcakes and reform are different. I just want to say we are running low on time, but I think we have time for these last two questions if we keep them brief. Okay. So I have a lot of friends who have ended up working at Amazon over, I live in Seattle. Um, <laughs> in 95, I became aware of Amazon, and I can't remember, like it was 97 when I became a Prime member, whatever. And, you know, I, I got it early on. I felt like something is really wrong with this. I Started, I stayed home when my kids were little. I had my first in 98. And, um, you know, I, I kind of started feeling like everything was happening through, like, Amazon. You were starting to do less and less on your own, um, and you could order more and more. Um, this Amazon wasn't in everything then, but there were other kinds of businesses that were. And I remember saying, you know, I'm not sure about this. I just don't know about this. What's this going to do to our local businesses? And I just started obsessing about Amazon. And can, can you just it. try so and yeah, is, get, is, get to the question what, mark? What, it was easy for me to say I'm not going to shop at Amazon. It's not so easy for other people who have more time constraints. or, But yet, I also feel pe people don't want to look. And I don't know how you say, look, there are consequences to every action. And Yeah, I, I get that. I, I have to say, I mean, that idea is very fashionable in our culture. Like, I, I, guess, I guess consumer power is power, but I think it's a somewhat milquetoast kind of power. You know, I think a lot of the problem of the neoliberal age we live in is that systemic problems are marketed as personal problems. And I think what, what, like, asking you to, you know, tolerating monopolistic companies as a matter of regulation and law and policy, allowing them to evade taxes, and then, you know, when there's no shops left in your neighborhood, blah, 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 then expecting you to have the fortitude 
to not shop there like feels like trying to solve it well, at the wrong Well, I'm saying to you, what is the, what's the, that doesn't work. I learned that years I ago. I think what works is solving the issue publicly, democratically, institutionally, universally. What do we want to do as a country with regard to tax policy for them and all other companies like them? Like, we don't really bring antitrust cases anymore in this age of monopoly. Like, that is one of the most important, unsexy, super important issues that we need to make sexy again, monopoly. Um, and not have individual people, whether it's lean in or yeah. boycotting, feeling like they gotta solve problems at the end of a busy day while like changing their kids' diapers. Like well, that's... I'm just saying it's really no, well, hard. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, we're gonna, uh, gonna, uh, we're gonna yeah. <laughs> Definitely is hard. Uh, all right, so last question. Um, so I'm just curious how would you inspire people in general, but especially young people, to realize that technology is often much more of a distraction than a tool? It's great. You know, I would even frame up beyond just distraction versus to saying, I think there's an idea in our time that's very weird that I think you could actually trace to, in, in some measure, to Seattle and like Microsoft um, a while ago and, and to the Bay Area, obviously, which is an idea that technology has a kind of inherent, that, that it has inherent properties, okay? This wave of technology, the last 30, 40 years, digital technology. There's been a lot of ideas about its intrinsic qualities. It's intrinsically empowering. It's intrinsically equalizing. It's intrinsically democratizing, right? And like many successful phony stories, it contains a significant amount of truth in it. If you are a uh, really talented singer living in your parents' basement in Algeria, your odds of being discovered in the YouTube age are much, much higher than they were before. Um, it would have been almost impossible to get out of that basement without the internet and YouTube and blah, blah, blah. And you could make any number of examples of like, you know, I think for a lot of minority communities in America that had to get past gatekeepers of all kinds to have their voice out, like, Twitter and other things like that are very powerful tools where there's an ability to speak without certain kinds of gatekeepers in your way. That said, I think anybody, anybody, the reason we all have to study history, and it's not an optional subject, is I think history shows pretty thoroughly that like nothing has in, inherent qualities, like tools don't have an inherent qualities. The same thing that empowers that kid in the Algerian basement, the same technology, can be used by the Chinese government to surveil people so that they can't protest ever again, right? Um, I just did a podcast with DeRay McKesson. We were just talking about like, I was like literally the same thing that allowed you guys to organize, the same tools that allowed you to do Black Lives Matter can and are being used in other places at other times to prevent something like Black Lives Matter from ever happening. It's the same tools, it's just a question of like who buys the tools, who has the contract, like who has the switch first. None of these things have an intrinsic, they're not intrinsically distracting or in, intrinsically empowering. It's all about what culture greets them, how we think about them, what the regulatory environment is. And this is a very optimistic story, like we shape this stuff. 
but we have lost the idea of shaping reality, and we live in this world, we talk about forces, and just the tech is, is doing this, and globalization is doing this. These are not things, right? We have lost confidence in our ability to bend the world to our will through the power of democratic self-government. And if I can just leave you with one thing, because I have to. Um, <laughs> they're getting very nervous over here. Um, is that this country was founded on the idea that we bend history to our will by getting together in spaces like this and talking and reasoning and debating and deciding things. And, and we built an extraordinary country on that faith. And like a lot of other countries copied some of those ideas. And here at the source of it, like we've, we've just lost faith in it. And we've started trusting people who got lucky on a hedge fund bet to remake the world. And people who had a really good idea for an online bookstore, which was a great idea, to become in charge of homelessness. And people who built a monopolistic social network, despite being incredibly socially awkward and not knowing a lot about social intercourse, <laughs> to end all the diseases and fix the schools of Newark, a city to which he'd never been. Um, and this is not just a story of what they're doing to us, this is a story of what we are doing to us. And we can choose tonight and in all the days to come to stop doing this and to take change back. Thank you very much. Thank you.